Well, kids ages four to six are welcome to join Mackenzie and Aaron. Are you joining them today? You're observing. All right, great. Well, we will miss you down here, but I'm glad you're observing. So kids, join them over there. Kids who are going to be in the service, remember this time is for you too. And so we've got sermon note sheets and colored pencils right over here at the welcome table. Be sure to write, draw pictures, ask questions, write them down so you can ask your parents about this time together. And uh, let's go ahead and just bow our heads for this time and pray for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that we can gather together as your people to learn more about who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would just delight in who you made us to be, that we would delight that we can participate as the church as one unified body uh, to sing and to proclaim and to hear and to receive grace uh, every day to walk in faith in you. And Lord, we pray that, that faith would take a deep hold in our lives. Pray that for our kids uh, as they learn uh, this morning about what it means to follow you. Uh, and, and for us as well, as we talk about just the ways that you have designed us to gather into fellowship and to live lives together. I pray that we, it, it would stir within us um, a great uh, thankfulness for the privilege of the church and a deep desire to take upon the mantle of responsibility to really love one another well, and that you would gift us and equip us with the leaders that that you have for us to be able to lead this congregation to greater maturity in Christ. Lord, that's our hope, that we might know him and make him known, and we need the church to do that. So we thank you for that gift this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7, and you can find it on page 992 in the Bibles provided there in the chairs. Now, last week, we came to a, a, just a natural breaking point in the book of Proverbs. We finished those first nine chapters, that big, long introduction that Solomon gave to us. And, and so this is a good opportunity for us to just take a break, take a step back, and really think and dwell and hopefully glean from the wisdom that we have received for godly living. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, just the idea of just being flooded with with God's wisdom sort of came to mind. And so it's good for us to, to take advantage of this breaking point to just buoy ourselves a little bit and catch our breath before we dive back in. And so given the fact that we've reached this breaking point and in light of the elder nomination that we made a couple of weeks ago, we just decided, you know what, we're gonna call an audible here and we're gonna take some time and, and talk about local church leadership. We just wanna spend a few weeks unpacking what that means. I mean, we haven't done it in a while. I mean, back in 2010, we, we had that sermon, Why Do We Have Elders, right? Uh, it came up throughout the book of Ephesians, but let's face it, that's 2013. It's been a while, and, and we're a rotating church, right? You know, people transition through us all the time, and so it's good for us uh, to just kind of go back and look and examine this. I mean, how is the church to be governed, what, and, and what does that look like functionally? And also, what part do you have to play in it all? This could be a very, very confusing issue because there are a number of different approaches out there. And depending upon your background and experience, you might think it ought to look more one way than another. Okay? So, for example, who is involved in leading the church? Is it a diocese of archbishops, bishops, and rectors? Is it a a conglomeration of pope and cardinals and priests? Is it assemblies and synods and sessions of elders? Is it a, like like when I grew up, was it a, a single pastor and deacon board, or really more functionally appropriate, a deacon board and a single pastor? Or... Are they run by some sort of leadership committee, some corporate board, if you will, or, or uh, some just number of committees that all just kind of have their hands in one little piece of the puzzle? Uh, or are they led by a plurality of elders? And then what about the congregation themselves? Are they completely uninvolved? Or 
Does the congregation sort of rule democratically? Or maybe, maybe they're a bit more mystical or pietistic and kind of operate functionally out of really there's no leader but the Holy Spirit. See, depending on how you answer those questions will impact your involvement and your participation in the local church. So if you think that the church is led by some outside hierarchy, like that's what you're familiar with, you're going to tend towards being an uninvolved church member. If you come from a background where the congregation ruled democratically or that everyone had to be led by the Spirit and sort of feel a certain way before you can move forward on any decision, you might find yourself resisting or just pushing back on the authority and leadership of the church. However you view the local church leadership has a huge impact on the way that you will participate in the life of the local church, even if you're here for the first time, or maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a believer, right? You wouldn't call yourself a follower of Christ because you have enough experience with the church to have some preconceived notions about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be part of the church. You're even like coming in with suspect about me. Who am I? And it's all based upon your prior experience. Has a huge impact. Fortunately for us, though, our good shepherd, our chief elder, Jesus Christ, has not left us without instruction on how his church, his body, his bride, his flock ought to be organized. And what we want more than anything is to be biblical. We want to be accurate. We want to be faithful to his design. We want to be clear on the roles and responsibilities of both leaders and the congregation. We want to take time to explore what the Bible has to say about the leadership and organization of the local church so that we, as one united body with one voice, may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together. As we lead or as we submit, as we proclaim or as we commend with our lives together, the truth and beauty of Jesus Christ our Lord to one another and to the watching world. Now, by way of particular, let me just say up front, we at Redeemer Church are an elder-led congregation. We hold to congregationalism. That is, we, the members of Redeemer Church, all of us, we all have a part to play in the leadership and direction of this church. But that congregation is led by elders. Now, we'll take time to explain what that means further as we go along in this series. And so here's the direction that this series is going to take, just up front so you know. Local church leadership. Here's what we're going to do. Today, this morning, I'm going to seek to clarify what an elder is and why an elder is qualified to be an elder. The next week, Lord willing, Caleb is going to come and he's going to talk more directly and explicitly about the roles and responsibilities of elders, what it is that they do in greater detail. We'll follow that up by talking about deacons, right? Because we see in Acts chapter 6 and Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, you've got elders and deacons, right? So we're going to talk about who they are, what qualifies them, what they're responsible for. And then after that, what we're going to do is we're going to take time to clarify the roles and responsibilities that the congregation has to the elders and deacons and to one another as members of the body of Christ. Okay, we're going to try to go all the way down. And so, that's, that's the direction we're going. Because here's the thing, guys. If you're a member, even if you're not a member, but especially if you are a member, you need to recognize this. You have influence over the direction of this body, either for good or for ill. But you are not neutral. And quite honestly, the same goes for you who are not members of this church or any church or you know, whatever. You have some influence over the direction and course of the church. And so we're not neutral. Therefore, we want to take it seriously. We need to embrace the roles and responsibilities that God has given each one of us within the church, whether you have an official position or not. And what I pray that we would come to see and embrace this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and the other passages that we're going to look at, is that qualified elders are a gift from Christ to shepherd his local flock. Therefore, 
We are to follow their leadership. I know that's bigger than I like to make it, but nevertheless, that's what it is. Qualified elders are a gift from Christ to shepherd his local flock. Therefore, we are to follow their leadership. So with that, let's turn our attention to the text. Let's pray that God would, would, would unite us together in our understanding of what elders are. It says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now this morning, I'm going to seek to answer three questions. First of all, I've got to take some time and explain what a church elder is. There's a lot of confusion. Got to take time to define that. Second, right, I, I want to answer the question, what qualifies a person for eldership? And then third, I just want to summarize, put everything together and say, ask, answer this question, what ultimately are we looking for in an elder? Okay, so those are the directions. What is an elder? What qualifies him? What ultimately are we looking for? So first, what are church elders? Well, in verses 1 and 2 there, we see that the text speaks of a particular church office called an overseer. This quite simply is one who oversees the church, oversees God's flock, this local body. It reads, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, that word overseer there, we read it as one word. It's actually two different words that are related to each other. In the Greek, they both come from the word episkopos. This is where we get our word episcopalian or bishop from. Now, wait a minute, Chad. I thought we were talking about elders. But here, you're you're mentioning bishops right off the bat. Are, Are these two distinct positions? Well, no. Okay? In Acts chapter 20, I mean, Caleb just mentioned this a little while ago. Acts chapter 20, in verse 17, what we see happening there is Paul, after his third missionary journey, is on his way back to Jerusalem. He stops in a town called Miletus, and he calls for Timothy and the elders of the church of Ephesus to come and to meet him in Miletus. So he's calling for church elders to come and visit him there, okay? And that word is presbyteros, and it's elder, right? It's where we get our word presbytery or presbyterian from. They're church elders. But he says to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, which Caleb read, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Same word there. To care for, quite literally to shepherd or to pastor the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. And so what we see here that church elders were given by the Holy Spirit. They were made overseers by the Holy Spirit to care for or to shepherd God's flock, the church of God. Now, keep your finger in Titus chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Timothy chapter 3, and then flip over to Titus chapter 1. It's page 998. Now, here again, we see the apostle Paul giving very similar instruction to Titus that he had just given to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, he says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, plural, in every single town as I directed you. Now listen to the similarities here in these descriptions. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, now remember, appointing elders, for an overseer has God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so Paul tells Titus, appoint elders plural. And what is Titus to look for in an elder? Well, he says, look for this. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, etc., etc., etc. And so what you see here, that elders and overseers are one and the same. They are to steward God's flock faithfully, leading, watching over, feeding, putting into order, protecting, and caring for God's flock. And how do they do that? Well, 1 Timothy 3 says that they must be able to teach, watch over, and be an example to the flock. And Titus chapter 1 says that they must oversee, set an example, and verse 9, be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so what we see there clearly is that there's overlap between these terms of elder and overseer, but we're not done yet. Because not only are elders and overseers slash bishops one and the same, but church elders are also pastors or shepherds. And we saw that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where Paul charged the elders of the church of Ephesus to pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, to care for, again, quite literally, to shepherd the church of God. Now, friends... What we see there is that it's not you've got a bishop or an overseer over here, you've got an elder over here, and you've got a pastor or a a shepherd or a teacher over here. These are all one and the same. They use these terms interchangeably as one position of church elder who is an overseer, all right, who is a pastor or a shepherd. Now that term shepherd is the single most important image for us to get if we are to understand what a church elder is. If you miss this, you're gonna miss what a church elder is. A church elder is a shepherd slash pastor of God's flock. I've got more to show you, okay? So 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. In 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, the apostle Peter says to the elders in the churches throughout the regions of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And here's what he says to them. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a fellow partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And here's what he tells these elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So there you see all three of them again, right? Not under compulsion. You're not doing it out of obligation, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, that is Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so Peter says to the elders of these churches, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So again, what we see here are not three distinct offices, but one. An elder is an overseer who is a pastor or shepherd, And what is the staff that he uses to shepherd his flock, to rule over and to guide and to nourish and to protect? It is the word of God as he gives himself over continually to prayer. And friends, that image of shepherd more than anything else describes what an elder is and what an elder does. Okay, think about what a shepherd does just day in, day out. I mean, if you ever studied a shepherd and watched the way they guide them and the way they go after the lost and the way that they have to prod the, those that aren't really willing to <laughs> come alongside or whatever, but they're constantly leading, constantly protecting, constantly feeding and nourishing that flock. It's not ultimately about his age or how successful he is in the business world. It's not about his status in the community. An elder shepherds the flock of God. 
And it's that description, shepherd, that connects the ministry of church elders to the ministry of the apostles. Though their ministry was more broad, an apostle was a greater responsibility. After all, apostles were those who saw the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and were appointed by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ to go out as his ambassadors to start his church. They had the ability to speak and to write with great authority like you and I do not have. And all of that was accompanied by miracles and signs and wonders, a very unique office there. Nevertheless, though that is true, that their, their ministry was bigger and more broad than that of an elder. When it came to how they were functioning within the local church, they were eldering. That's what they did. And they set an example for the other elders to follow. Okay? This is huge. So when you think about apostle versus elder, and you do see them distinct in scripture, think of it like this. Think about the difference between a four-star general and a one-star general. Four-star general has much greater responsibility. He's over the others, but they're all generals, okay? Remember what the apostle Paul said to the elders in Ephesus or to Timothy and to Titus, how they are to follow his example in shepherding, in eldering. He says, you want to know how to do this job and how to teach other people to do the same things? He says, these things which you have seen and heard in me, entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Follow my example, I'm an elder here. All right, think about what he did functionally as he was going about his ministry. His first missionary journey, for example. He goes to the region of Galatia, and a few months later on his way back, what's he doing? He's appointing elders and everywhere to continue the ministry that he had begun. Remember what the apostle Peter just said to us. In 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. But in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he exhorts the elders throughout this region as a fellow elder to shepherd the flock of God. Now, he's called himself an apostle. He could have easily called himself an apostle again, but he didn't. He called himself a fellow elder. That's significant. Remember that the apostle John considered himself an elder in the first verses of 2nd and 3rd John, right? There's overlap in what's happening here. It's that description, shepherd, that connects the ministry of church elders to the ministry of our good chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Peter calls him our chief shepherd and says, when your chief shepherd appears, when our chief shepherd appears, you will receive this unfading crown of glory. His apostles, to his apostles, Jesus said, upon this rock, this apostolic witness that, that you have clearly seen and understand that I am the Christ, I will build my church. Says that to Peter, who would later deny him, but after the resurrected Christ returns, meets up with Peter, Three times he says to him, what? Feed my sheep. Be a shepherd. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 through 25, the apostle and fellow elder Peter said this of the ministry of Christ. He said, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. We would all see and agree with that. But verse 25, it's what's amazing. He says, for you were all straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's speaking of Jesus. So what he's saying there is, look, it's not like the good shepherd's work is done. He is still shepherding. He is still overseeing your souls as he intercedes before the right hand of his father. It's Christ who is our chief shepherd and overseer. And when we imitate Christ as elders, we continue his ministry. All who have received salvation through the repentance of sin and faith in the death and resurrection of Christ are now his sheep. And friends, sheep need a shepherd. And he's given that to us. But furthermore, it's that description shepherd 
that not only connects the ministry of elders, church elders, to the ministry of the apostles and to the ministry of Jesus himself, but also to the ongoing work of God the Father, who himself declares in Ezekiel 34, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among them that have scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from among the peoples. I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. You see, there's something amazing and wonderful in the way that God designed the church to function and the ongoing ministry of church elders through faithfulness to the apostles' teaching the very work and word of Christ and the work of God that he has been doing throughout all time. And we go wrong when we try to isolate or try to draw sharp, distinct lines between these descriptions when we see them in Scripture. Yes, Jesus and Jesus alone is our chief shepherd. Yes, the apostles had a position of authority that was over the elders. Yes, Timothy and Titus served as interim elders for an indefinite period of time as they ordered the church and appointed more permanent elders. But all of them, all of them, all of the time were shepherding, eldering, overseeing, set an example, doing the very same thing that they would require of church elders because that is what they learned from Jesus and Jesus was perfectly obeying the will of his father who is shepherding his sheep. You've got to see that continued. Let's not draw such sharp distinctions between apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers like we see in, in Ephesians 4 verse 11. Right? Timothy, in First and Second Timothy, was called all of those throughout those two letters. What matters most is that these are leaders, these shepherds, they were given by Christ as gifts to the church to shepherd and to guide and to protect and nourish and to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all reach maturity in him. Friends, it says that they are a gift. I'm a gift. You're welcome. <laughs> no, don't get me wrong. Because they were and they are representative leaders under the authority of God to faithfully reflect and continue the ministry of Christ and his apostles until the chief shepherd appears. That is what a church elder is. It's important to get that right. Doesn't matter what your background is, what your tradition comes from, whether you had priests or bishops or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is what Christ has put for us in terms of our leadership. And praise God that each church is to be appointed and gifted with more than one for the good of the body, for the flock, because sheep need shepherds. Yes, they're sheep too, but sheep need shepherds. So that's what they are. That's question number one. What are elders? So then we have to ask the very next question. What qualifies a person for eldership? And for that, we've, we've been given a really good description in verses one through seven. We've been given a good description, but not an exhaustive description. You've got to get this, right? This is not an exhaustive list. There are more things that you would want to see in an elder. There are more things that God calls us to that are not explicitly mentioned here. Titus adds a few more in his list and leaves a few out, right? But these lists are not exhaustive. And here's another important thing for you to get as we come to this list. It's important to recognize, like D.A. Carson says, that this is not an extraordinary list but is quite remarkable for being unremarkable. 
What he means by that is that almost all of these characteristics that we will see in this list should describe all Christians, increasingly so, more and more as we grow into the likeness of Christ. All right, we are called to almost all of them. You, me, it doesn't matter who you are. We are all called to these things. These qualifications characterize, though not perfectly, the lives of elders. We're looking for men who are faithful, who are exemplary in these things, though not perfect. So when you see a man who is faithful, who is qualified for this office, you ought to be able to recognize him. And this list is a means of helping us to do that. But again, we're all called to it. It's not just for them. And it's not only for them. The first trait that Paul mentions here in verse one is a desire to be an elder. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. This is a good thing. Right? Peter calls the elders in 1 Peter 5, verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not out of mere duty or just begrudging obligation, but willingly as God would have you, and to do it eagerly or freely, without any requirement for payment or recognition or applause or some official position, some official title, without some full-time salary or whatever. You just want to do it. You do it freely. You do it willingly. You do it eagerly. This is a good thing. This desire is a good thing. But friends, it is not an ultimate thing. We go wrong when we think that we are called to the office of overseer just because I have this desire. That it is the desire itself that somehow qualifies me. And friends, I have seen this happen so many times. My time in seminary with young men within the church, they have this desire and it's a good thing, but just because they have this desire doesn't mean that they are called to ministry. It is no guarantee. We also go wrong when we think or or, or when the thing that we're truly aspiring to is not the responsibilities that are given to an elder, but to the office itself. It's not about serving, sacrificing yourself for the good of the body, being willing to lay your life down to do what is necessary to shepherd and to nourish the sheep But instead, it becomes about you having that position. The real desire is is not to reflect Christ or model his example regardless of the pain. No, the real ambition is for self-glory, for power, for authority, to be seen in the eyes of others as spiritual or holy, to be that guy that's supposed to have all of the answers who really usurp Christ serving, trying to be functional saviors in the lives of other people. Again, we've got to watch that. Got to be really careful about our hearts in this. Why do you have that desire? Again, the desire is a good thing, but it is not an ultimate thing. What makes the task noble is the beauty and privilege of modeling Christ for his people as you willingly lay down your life to take up the necessary and weighty task of shepherding Christ's flock in whatever way you can. And what matters most in that whole pursuit is that the church can affirm godly character in its elders. This is ultimately what it's looking for. Look at those descriptions. Almost all of them are related to character. Verse two, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. This is the big blanket, the umbrella that covers them all. It's so important that Paul actually mentions it twice in Titus in verses six and seven. To be above reproach is to have integrity, to exemplify Christ both toward believers and towards unbelievers. No one, not inside the church or outside the church, suspects this man of wrongdoing or immorality. His character is above reproach. Titus adds in in chapter 1, verse 8, that an elder is to be a lover of good. Not a lover of worldly things, just looking like the world, but a lover of good. Someone who is upright, who is just, who is righteous, who is holy. Not perfectly, but you can see it in the man. Both lists in Timothy and Titus 
require that elders be the husband of one wife. Quite literally, it says a one-woman man. Okay, so does this mean that an elder must be a man? Well, yes, it does. In the preceding chapter, just flip back a little bit, draw your eyes back, 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 13. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Okay? And he's not simply addressing a situation that was occurring there in Ephesus of some unlearned and just kind of uh, boisterous women trying to lead, but he, because he says a woman over a man anywhere. He says instead she is to remain and learn quietly. And he gives reason for this. And his reason there is verse 13. It's not because she is somehow unequal or inferior or not as intelligent or not as gifted or something like that. It has nothing to do with that. Verse 13 says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is the reason why. He roots the role in God's design for mankind and creation in which man, the male, partner in the relationship was given the responsibility to lead and to be the representative head for his family. He's given that charge. That's the only reason why. And so when we think about this, going back, to be a one-woman man, what does that ultimately mean? Okay? It means to be faithful, committed, and sexually pure. That's what it means right? It speaks as much to the issue of pornography as it does to the issue of polygamy. He is to be faithful, committed, and pure. If he's married, then he's faithful, committed, and pure with his wife. If he's not, he's still faithful and committed and pure. Now, don't worry, we're going to come back to this one. The list continues. An overseer is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, In Titus, Paul uses the word discipline. He's a disciplined man. He's temperate. He's reasonable. He's thoughtful. He's watchful. He's able to control himself. He is honorable in his dealings with insiders and outsiders. He is disciplined. He devotes himself not to things that are permissible or allowable, but he labors hard towards things that are good, that are mutually beneficial, that will build up the body. And people respect him for it. He is to be, as it says there in chapter 3, verse 7, well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Because here's the reality. Elders are always being scrutinized, always being questioned, always being examined, put under the radar, both by those who are inside the church and especially by those who are outside of the church. I mean, just think about the news, and you, you often see news reports of some moral failing of some pastor, and it's the unbelieving world saying, look at that, told you so. So they must be above reproach in this. If an overseer has a poor reputation with the unsaved world, he and the entire church will fall into disgrace. And Paul stated that such a disgrace is a trap that is set by the devil himself. So being respected and well thought of is important because we all, but especially elders, represent Christ before the watching world. Both lists add that he is to be hospitable, that he tangibly expresses love for others, both inside and outside of the church. He's welcoming, he is helpful, he desires to share his life with others. He's not a drunkard. Fairly obvious, you would also add to that, he doesn't get high. He's not violent, but gentle. He's not a fighter, but a peacemaker. Peter adds in chapter 5, verse 3, that he does not domineer over those in his charge, but is an example to the flock. An elder is not quarrelsome. He doesn't bicker and argue over every nitpicking little thing. Titus says that he's not arrogant. We're quick-tempered. He doesn't think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And he's okay if he doesn't get his own way. He doesn't fight. Just become angry when everything doesn't go according to his plan. 1 Timothy 3.3 3 
says that an overseer is not to be a lover of money. Titus 1.7, he is not to be greedy for gain. 1 Peter 5 verse 2 says that he is not to shepherd for shameful gain. So looking at in terms of the op- opposites, he would be generous and sacrificial. He would live for heavenly gain, not earthly riches or earthly comforts. Of course, verses 4 and 5 are big, right? Says that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? He must lead his household well. He must bring up his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He must train his children to be submissive. Titus adds in in chapter 1 verse 6, his children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And that's pretty rough, right? Now that word believers, that it's used to describe his children, that word is pistos, all right? That is most naturally translated as faithful. And I think that faithful better suits what we see happening here in the text, right? I think it better corresponds with what we see in these two passages. His children are to be submissive, faithful to their parents, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. To put that in layman's terms, they're not wild and disobedient. They're not just out of control. They are manageable. And so if the potential elder has children, we want to know that he can lead his household well and that he is faithful to train his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and that it is bearing fruit in the lives of his children. It's a good thing. And the reason why this is in here is because most people who would be elders are going to be married and have children. Most. We'll come back to it. Verse 6 adds, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, again, we have to keep in mind here, this is Paul speaking. Paul, who on his first missionary journey went through the region of Galatia. He's proclaiming the gospel. Many people are coming to Christ. He comes back a couple of months later, and what's he doing? He's appointing elders in every town that he's just been. Brand new believers, church full of them but he's appointing elders. And so our missional context has to be considered here. We don't want to be hasty in the laying on of hands. We don't. But at the same time, a plurality of elders is needed. It is a good and necessary thing. So how do we understand this? I think that what Paul is ultimately calling for here is spiritual maturity and humility. He's looking for someone who is spiritually mature and who is humble. He's looking for men who are wise beyond their years. Not that they've been professing Christians for a long, long time. He's looking for men who are humble enough to fight against the devil's temptations towards pride and self-exaltation. It is spiritual maturity and humility that he's ultimately looking for here. Now, let me just point this out. What we've seen so far here in this list that we've examined None of it is unique to the role of elder. Qualifications for elders only. There are many, 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 many passages that we can look in every single one of these that call us as followers of Christ to the very same things. Elders are just meant to be exemplary in those ways. Not perfect, but exemplary. All right? I'm not dismissing these Uh, these qualifications in saying that because character is huge. It's what matters the most. Elders are to be above reproach. But here's the thing. In evaluating a prospective elder, we too need to be humble in our assessments and realize that Christ calls us to the very same things. It's good for us when we consider this. The only qualification on this list that is unique to the office of elder is found there in verse 2. An overseer must be able to teach. Whereas Titus, it says in Titus, he must hold, to the, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And why is that the case? Because this is the primary task of an elder. This is what we're doing in shepherding most often. We must have the ability to communicate and apply the truth of Scripture with clarity, with coherence, with fruitfulness, so that the church is edified and built up in Christ. 
Now, to be faithful to sound doctrine and able to defend it does not require that he has an advanced degree. We've got to keep that in mind. And it also doesn't mean that he's a preacher per se, but that he has the ability to instruct or to counsel or to disciple or to evangelize others faithfully with the word of God. Now, with these qualifications, I hope you've noticed so far, we have moral and spiritual characteristics, but we also see situational qualifications. Okay, they're not all or only moral or spiritual. You've got moral and spiritual, and you've got situational qualifications. Some are fairly obvious to us, right? Not a drunkard. Shouldn't be too hard to figure that one out, right? But others are a little bit more unclear. What does it mean, ultimately, to be sober-minded? How do I think about that? How do I examine somebody in light of their call to be sober-minded? And yet, with all of these characteristics, these qualifications that we see, it takes wisdom and grace to know how to assess a brother in light of them, right? There's a real danger here in being too wooden in our understanding and application of them. So, for example, hospitable. He's to be hospitable. What does that mean? Does that mean that he is expected to have everyone over, uh, from the church over to his house at least once a year? Or at least by the time a year's passed, he's had everybody in the church over to his house? Does that mean that he's required to share a meal with a believer or unbeliever at least once a week in order to be faithful to that? Does it mean that he's required to have some kind of face-to-face with somebody from the church every single day in order to truly be hospitable. You see how this breaks down, okay? No, we're speaking of someone who is characterized as hospitable. Not that they are legalistically meeting certain expectations of some or all of the church members. It takes wisdom and it takes grace. It takes trusting people who knows that brother's heart far better than you do to be able to assess him in this characteristic. But there are also situational qualifications as well. I've already mentioned one, right? Not a recent convert. Friends, that depends so much upon your context. It's going to look different If you are in a congregation where the median age is 45 and almost everybody in the church has an advanced degree, right? And it's going to look totally different if you are a missionary in Papua New Guinea. We have to learn from Paul here and be wise. Timothy had the responsibility of being an apostolic delegate, He's given this commission of serving as an interim apostle slash elder to spend as much time as was necessary to organize and bring order to the church, these local churches, and appoint elders in every single town. And when he started this ministry, when he started following Paul, he was probably around the age of 18. And he was probably only around the age of 35 when this letter was penned. And what does Paul say to him in 1 Timothy chapter 4? Let no one despise you for your youth, but what? Set an example in eldering. Don't let them despise you because you are not technically older, but set an example in what it means to be spiritually mature and to wisely lead this congregation, to faithfully shepherd it. See, you can be young and spiritually mature And you can be old and spiritually immature. Gray hairs and life experience are no guarantee of spiritual maturity. Now, if you take a young man who is spiritually mature and you put him in the role of an elder or a shepherd, guess what? He's going to start growing gray hair, right? I'm living proof of that. (laughs) But nevertheless, most of the time, elders will be older, but not always. (laughs) Caleb's like, It's the most excited I've seen him in a sermon ever as he's shaking his head about his gray hair. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Another situational qualification, husband of one woman, a one-woman man. We've got to think carefully about this. What if the man, say, is widowed? What if the man is divorced 
but never remarries. What if that man was divorced and remarried, but this happened a long, 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 long time ago before he was ever a Christian, and he has now faithfully followed Christ for decades and is the most mature, the most gifted, the most loving man in your congregation. Are you going to say, no, sorry, man. You made a mistake before you were a believer. I'm going to hold that against you. (laughs) Does he even have to be married? Because here's the thing. How are you going to reconcile that with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about wishing that we were all single just as he was so that we might be singularly, solely devoted to Christ Do you think that what Paul really meant was like, I want you all to be single just as I am, except for you church elders. You guys get married. Everybody else, you be single. What do you think Paul wasn't even thinking about it? It's just like, you know what? Being singularly devoted to Christ is so much better that we're just going to ixnay on on marriage and children, and we'll just see whether or not this whole Christianity thing continues beyond this generation. Do you think that's what he meant? Absolutely not. No. I mean, it, it just think practically. What do you do with the countless number of men throughout church history who despite their youth or despite their singleness faithfully serve the church as elder? History is replete with them. Charles Spurgeon was 19 and single when he entered into the pastorate. And he had only been a believer for four years. Martin Luther did all of his best work when he was still single. He did. At Katie, she must have corrupted him. I'm joking. You read Table Talk. She was wonderful, okay? Or what about this one? Titus 1 verse 6. Children are believers, Your children must be believers. So can a father control the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of his children? Can he ultimately dictate that? I would love for that to be true. I would, but it's not. And I've seen that every single day of my life over and over and over and over and over again. What if he has faithfully taught his children their entire young years And yet when they are old and accountable for themselves, they rebel against Christ. What if if the man has young children who have not all professed faith in Christ? So he's got some kids that are believers, but some kids that are unbelievers, right? That rules me out. My kids are far too young. What What if he only has one child? Because it says children... Not child. What if he's unable to have children because they struggle with infertility? Is he unqualified? Again, the whole married with children thing, that's going to be what's most common. That's going to be preferable, but it's not a wooden requirement. Okay? It's not going to happen all that way. And if it was, if it required married with kids, believing children, that rules out a number of elders throughout the history of the church. It ruled out a number of the apostles. More than likely, it ruled out Timothy and Titus. And let's not forget about the two men in Scripture that we are explicitly called to imitate. Jesus and Paul. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, Christ was single and childless. And Paul has just told us, it's better for you to be single. So if I'm going to be faithful to imitate Paul, and if I'm going to be faithful to imitate Jesus, then I have to be childless and single. You see the problem with wooden translations? Too wooden? No, that's not the way you translate. That's not the way you understand imitate. Okay, good. Let's keep that in mind. Because we cannot, we, we, we have to see that we cannot treat these as wooden requirements, but must apply wisdom and grace 
to them. Yes, yes, absolutely. Marriage and children are a context for our sanctification. They are a testing ground for our maturity in Christ. That will be common. That will be most common. But guess what? So is singleness and so is childlessness. That is a context for our sanctification too. Are we, are we going to be so fatalistic We are not fatalists, by the way. Are we going to be so fatalistic to say, you know what? God has not given you a wife, therefore you are not qualified. God has not given you children, therefore you are not qualified. God has not given you believing children, therefore you are not qualified. Really? Because (laughs) that, that is an errant philosophy. That misses the point entirely. To say that it has to be that wood, has to be that rigorous, Right? A man can show that he is covenantally faithful and sexually pure even if he is unmarried. He can prove that that is reflective of his life. He can prove that he has the ability to manage a household well and to lovingly lead children to Christ even if he does not have biological children of his own. And we see this happen in the church all the time. And so if someone who has been a believer for a relatively short amount of time can so love God and God's word that he grows so exponentially in wisdom and maturity as to be able to faithfully preach and teach for the edification of the entire body. This is not wooden. It requires wisdom. Wisdom is what we're going for. Wisdom in the plurality of elders who make the nomination and wisdom, the unified wisdom of the church who affirms him, who has seen his life. And when he proves himself to be faithful, when we see him shepherding the flock and bearing fruit, even though he's not officially an elder, then we, the church, are to affirm him and follow him. If he's aspiring to the office of overseer and we can see how much of a gift, how much of a blessing he is to the church, we should want to recognize him as an elder. And if we find ourselves unwilling to do so, and quite honestly, we need to do a little heart check of our own. Why would you refuse to bless one who has so clearly been a blessing. I'm not saying that there aren't reasons, but you need to examine your heart carefully. And so what I want to do is I want to try to just take another minute or two to wrap all of this up, to summarize this by answering the third question. I think that this is a helpful rubric for us when we think about what we're ultimately looking for in an elder. There are five C's. You can summarize all of this that we're looking for in an elder in five C's, which we've already seen from this text. First and foremost is character. This is key. Must have character. Does this man exemplify Christ? This is huge because in our day, we poo-poo character for the sake of competency. Okay? But no. Character is first and foremost. Does this person exemplify Christ? Does he live a holy life? Is he spiritually mature enough to be able to co-lead this church along with other elders well? This is also key, guys. It'd be one thing if he was leading the church all by himself, but it is a plurality of elders. And that changes the dynamics because some have strengths, some have weaknesses. Some are more gifted in one area than another. Some are, they, we balance each other out. And so he doesn't have to be perfect in all of these ways because he's not the only guy. Is, the, is there any moral or spiritual characteristic from those lists that he is lacking in? And if so, then the question becomes, how can we as the church, come alongside him to help him in this area. Because you see, the goal here is not to run a man down or disqualify someone who is a stranger to you, but to love and edify and build up a brother. That has to be our heart as we approach this, even if that man is not spiritually ready for the task that has been presented before him. It changes the dynamic when you're like, you realize, you know what? I'm not the judge here. It's not my job to condemn the man and say, sorry, you're disqualified. 
but to say, man, I just think that you need more time, and let's come around. Let me help you in this. Like, I just want to see you love your wife well. I want to see you grow in your ability to discipline your children. I want to see these things happen in your life, and so let's work together on these. Totally different. Is he an example of Christ-like character? Second C, second attribute that we're looking for is conduct. How does he conduct himself? How does he conduct himself in his home with his wife and his kids if he has them? Does he lead them well? Does he lead them faithfully? Is he devoted to his wife? Is he sexually pure? Does he faithfully train up and discipline his children? Does he manage other areas of his life? So maybe, maybe he's married, maybe he's not, but how does he manage the other areas of his life? How does he conduct himself publicly and privately? Does he have the respect of those both inside and outside the church? Third attribute is conviction. Does he know and love God's word? Is his doctrine sound? Does he know what he believes and why he believes it? Is he willing and able to defend it? And not that every doctrine is a, is a hill to die on because it's absolutely not, but is he so convinced of the truth of Christ that by God's grace, he would be willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel? Does he fight hard against sin and against error? Does he labor diligently for the souls of others? Is he a man of conviction? A fourth does he have capabilities or competencies to do what is required of him as an elder? Is he able to teach sound doctrine? Is he able to refute error? Is he able to lead by applying spiritual discernment to the many difficult and fuzzy tasks that are thrown before elders? Can he do this alongside the other elders what elders have been called to do together? It doesn't mean that he has to be the best at it, but can he faithfully perform the responsibilities of an elder and does he aspire to? And then fifth and finally, does he have the confirmation of the church? Has the church been edified or encouraged through his discipleship and teaching? Are people coming to Christ because of him? Can they affirm what they see in this man? Is there clear and tangible evidence of how he has been a spiritual blessing to the church? Not that he's a nice guy or just kind of controls himself and is basically moral, but that he has truly been a blessing through his ministry to them. If that is the case, then we should affirm him. You see... These are ultimately the attributes that we're looking for in elders to affirm and leaders to joyfully follow. No man is going to be perfect in these, but we should see increasing growth and great humility as they strive to do that. And so if you're here and you're a man who's aspiring to the office of overseer, these are the things that we're looking for. So be patient and be diligent to pursue them. You will be recognized if you're being faithful to build up the body of Christ. When you see these attributes in others, acknowledge them, encourage them, praise God for the evidences of God's grace that you see in them. Guys, it is, it is such a cancer to compare yourself to other people. And because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people, what we automatically try to do is we try to run them down and build ourselves up. But the gospel says just the opposite. You forget about yourself and you point out the evidence of God's grace in the lives of other people. Do that. If the Lord has given you faithful elders, thank God for them. And pray that we would all grow in these ways, but especially for your elders, that they might be faithful to fulfill their ministry, which is for your benefit. It is for your good. And may we all come to see the qualified elders are a gift from Christ to shepherd his local flock. And therefore, we are to follow their leadership. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the wisdom that you have given the church. 
We thank you that you have not left us without a shepherd, though often we admit that we live that way and try to shepherd our own souls rather than entrusting our souls to each other. Father, we thank you for your intention to raise up men in the church who would serve as shepherds, who would reflect the work of the apostles, the work of Christ, and ultimately your work uh, throughout your the lives of your people throughout all time. And Lord, we thank you that, it, that we don't have to um, rely upon them solely. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> Praise you for that. that, that they, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the Word. But ultimately, we have the great shepherd of the sheep and overseer of our souls who is interceding for us. God, I pray that it would be our desire to see him, to glory in him that we would make our lives about living for him and receive that unfading crown of glory that he promises to us at his return. And that that would mean more than anything. And Lord, as we consider these things and how to apply them to our church, whether that be men who are aspiring to this position, men that we are considering, or those that we would desire to nominate or affirm, God, give us wisdom and help us to be unified in this. For the glory of your name, amen. Amen.